0: Now you hear it.
1: When you're a child, you learn there are three dimensions, height, width, and depth, like a shoebox. Then later you hear there's a fourth dimension, time. From Seattle, we are Drink in the Movies. I'm Taylor Baker. And I'm Michael Clausen. Welcome
0: back to Drink in the Movies. What are we drinking today?
1: A raspberry tangerine wheat from Hellbent Brewing Company.
0: Nice 4.5, 4.6%, something like that. Pretty tasty. How do you like it?
1: Very much. It's got a little bit of a nutty aftertaste, and it's almost like a sour that's definitely a beer. It's right in that little sweet spot of stuff that I love, especially on a hot, beautiful sunny day like today.
0: Feels like summer 80 degrees. This is refreshing.
1: Yes, now let's just drink the rest of it and lean back and turn on the air conditioning uh, that we have to turn off while we're recording and forget this.
0: Listen to Cheryl Crow. That yes. That would be fitting. <laughs> because we're talking about Aaron Brockovich today, directed by Steven Soderbergh, our one and only film of the episode, digging a little deeper than usual.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, it's got a score from Thomas Newman. It's quite noticeable. And as far as his... Uh, directing history this is the last film that steven soderbergh ever made with a cinematographer that was not peter andrews also known as steven soderbergh um so there's going to be quite a bit for us to dig in on but first let's do a preview of a history of violence the next uh re episode that we'll be doing now that we have official branding let's do it over the cap
0: they were gonna kill us. He saved our lives.
1: Hello, my hero. Tom Stahl is a family man with long-standing ties to this community. Right now, this community is rallying behind him and calling him a hero. Way to go, Tommy. Great, more reporters. You look like reporters. You're the big hero. really
0: don't like talking about it, sir. You sure took care of those two bad man. Joey.
1: My name is Tom. It's Joey. Tell me, Sarah.
0: Sarah,
1: my daughter. Where is she? What's going on, Dad? I
0: thought they knew me. I thought I was somebody else. Nothing to worry about, Mrs. Stahl. I've been watching over.
1: I don't know what you want, and I don't really care. You should care about what I want because what I want might change your life. Why don't you ask Tom and ask him how come he's so good at killing people? All right, Michael. That was the trailer for A History of Violence from David Cronenberg. What do you think about our next re-screening title?
0: I'm very excited to dig into it. It has been a very long time since I saw this movie. I remember running it from the video store way back in the day, not really liking it, but it's one I've been kind of curious about revisiting for a long time. Um, It's not really one of the first movies that I think of when I think of David Cronenberg. My mind does go to the body horror stuff, Mm -hmm. scanners, uh, Videodrome, that kind of thing. And always have this kind of compartmentalized with like eastern promises which i actually haven't even seen but just this kind of separate category of film for him the more kind of dramatic thriller territory i think it looks great i'm psyched what about you
1: i agree it reminds me of uh friedkin kind of Mm. um and this is a film that i remember really really responding highly to uh when i had the dvd for it which i still own um but yeah it's it's a graphic novel adaptation which in the trailer you kind of get that vibe from Ed Harris being the comic book e villain with that false eye um or at least the scarring with the discolored eye but i'm i'm interested to go back and see Mortensen do a different performance i believe in the middle of shooting lord of the rings or directly after um and just kind of kind of dig into it from a historical film standpoint and also Eager for the opportunity to study up on some Cronenberg to try to make some make some more allegories and figure him out as a director.
0: Yeah, I think at the time I watched this, I was probably just noticing that Viggo Mortensen was in it. I had liked Lord of the Rings. I was like, yeah, this looks cool. Didn't go for it. I think my sensibility has evolved a long ways since then.
1: So. Oh, this reminded me of uh, Running Scared. Like, this is just mm. one of those brutal... Movies, you know, where is it that just a movie there. running there? Yeah, I yeah think I it's know a that. Paul Walker film. Mm. Uh, I believe it, I might be misremembering, but I'm pretty sure that it's about Paul Walker becoming a hero slash serial killer of pedophiles. Um, and this is just kind of in that vein of like brutal murder that's got some levity and fun to it.
0: <laughs> it will be fun to dig into. I'm psyched
1: on to. Steven Soderbergh's Aaron Brockovich. You might want to rethink those ties. Why are there medical records and blood samples in real estate files? Would you mind if I investigate this a little further? What makes you think you can just walk in there
0: and find what we need?
1: They're called boobs, Ed. Can I just...
0: Yeah, just... Hexavalent chromium can be very harmful.
1: So it kills people. Oh,
0: yeah.
1: You're a lawyer? Hell no. I hate lawyers. I just work for them. We're going to have to spend a little time filling in the holes in your research. Don't talk to me like I'm an idiot, okay? I think we got off on the wrong foot here. That's all you got, lady. Two wrong feet and ugly shoes. You gotta find a different job or a different guy. For the first time in my life, I got people respecting me. Please don't ask me to give it up.
0: You're emotional you're erratic you make this personal and it isn't that is my
1: work my sweat my time away from my kids if that's unpersonal, i don't know what is we're gonna get them here aren't we they're all signed every single one how did you do this seeing as how i have no brains or legal expertise i just went out there and performed 634 sexual favors i'm really quite tired all right michael one month later after we watched the trailer Where are you you at on this Steven Soderbergh masterpiece?
0: Whoa, we're bringing out the big M word. I really enjoy this movie. I think it is very satisfying. Um, I don't think it's the most complicated picture in the world. I think this is very crowd-pleasing and broadly appealing. But just to start off at a high level, I find this to be a very satisfying movie. What about you?
1: I find it to be a masterpiece, and I'm excited to tell you all the different reasons why I think that over the next three hours.
0: <laughs> we got all kinds of time.
1: Um, I mean, first and foremost, I brought it up earlier. There is no film following this film that Steven Soderbergh directed in which he had a cinematographer. My understanding is he did use a cinematographer on The Nick. I don't believe he used one on Mosaic. So when he took his uh, reprieve from directing film and thought that he was done directing film forever while he was making the Nick, I believe he was using cinematographers. um, That was, that was the one and only time since this film. Um, And I think that this is really interesting, like just at that microscopic level that this is the last film that he made with a cinematographer. Like there's something Mm. that happened along this project, I think that made him realize that he wants to be his own cinematographer. And the number one thing that leapt out to me is I came to understand the file boxes scenes. Um, I don't know if you remember those at all, but she goes into the waterboard board and mm. um, gets in the back room and it's very small. And all the scenes that they shot for that whole day, they could only fit one person in there. So it was just Steve mm. and Julia. And mm. I think that, that may have been such a pleasurable experience at some level or informed his artistic identity that um, I, I might be totally off base, but that that's one of the major takeaways I have for his entire filmmaking career um, from this film because it this is the last one.
0: Yeah, interesting. Um, yeah, diving into the cinematography. I'm not sure it played a huge role one way or the other in really... Enhancing any satisfaction I got from this movie, I think by and large the craft um, is sort of doing the job of just staying out of the way of the lead performance here, who provides the vast majority of the satisfaction I get out of this movie. Um, I think it's Ed Lockman who shot this, right, uh, cinematographer-wise. Um, I don't think this is like my my favorite uh, work of his. I think he's um, shot much more aesthetically pleasing movies to me um well he's
1: certainly shot in environments that are more aesthetically pleasing
0: that's true but um you know to even compare this to something like uh dark waters very similar for for many narrative reasons um i think there is some really uh stunning cinematography there and aesthetics um that really kind of enhanced the storytelling and some of the ideas in a way that's very different from what I think uh, Aaron Brockovich is all about, which is sort of less about aesthetic pleasure and more about performance. Um, So certainly no complaints about the cinematography. Um, It uh, just doesn't get in the way of its powerhouse lead.
1: Yes. And when you bring up powerhouse lead, the next thing I have to say is Albert Finney. He is such a asset to the film. He is the only thing that you can imagine standing opposite of Julia, taking the barrage and being empathetic, but also still maintaining authority. That is such a difficult role. And I can only imagine the famed storyteller from Big Fish playing that role.
0: Oh, I I would not have uh, made that connection. Yep. I completely would have forgotten about that. Yeah, I, I really like the performance. I like the character. I think it's a very endearing character. Um, he's very non-threatening. Um, it's sort of endearing just to watch him get worked up at times. Um, even though you know he's harmless, to see him get angry, you kind of know that there's not much that's going to come about from it, and mm-hmm. there's something that's just very sort of sympathetic about that. Um, and the the rapport between them throughout the film and how that evolves into this kind of begrudging respect with real friendship um just subtly beneath the surface i think is very persuasive and fun
1: It well it feels earned and i think that part of the reason it feels earned is the scenes that are cut and the distance of time that we go um i mentioned earlier the original cut for steven of this film was three hours and ten minutes according to what he said to three hours and 20 minutes and then he cut essentially an hour an hour 10 minutes and some of those scenes that he cut are entire storylines that would have really informed stuff i'm sure you remember the coughing fit she has where she shows up to the office and something's happening um with him having a conversation where they messed everything up and Pamela who's played by Cherry Jones is now pulled out of um, the lawsuit and is telling everyone else to do so in the newspaper. Um, that entire arc I believe was 20 minutes ish and she was sick from Hankley herself and was in the hospital. And Stephen chose to cut that because it kind of, it shifts focus from the real heroism and starts to make her Mm. into a victim and he felt like that compromised the storytelling Mm. but to me having all that happen off screen and have her just end up sick and have the passage of time occur that's one of those things that that defines a Steven Soderbergh film is that you don't see everything that's happening with, Mm. with these characters they have lives outside of this and it's he has a voyeuristic quality and that's what, for me, makes his films feel real, even though they're heightened. Even though Ocean's Eleven is definitely, you know, not the most realistic thing, um, it, it that heightened quality with the the voyeuristic passage of time, I think, really w- works for his style of filmmaking.
0: Yeah, it's interesting to hear how long it initially was, because while well, I think it, I think it's still over two hours. What is it like 210, 2.15, mm-hmm, or something 210. like that? It still feels very concise and kind of lean, even at that runtime, which is still pretty lengthy. I think this film really moved, so, um, you know, whatever he did decide to cut, it does feel like it it came together into a pretty tight uh, final product.
1: Yeah, and I mean, how often can you say that a legal procedural film is tight at an over two-hour runtime?
0: Yeah, And, and for me, it's almost what's satisfying is is a little bit less about process, even though this is kind of an investigative drama and it's more about character and kind of this secondary theme of um, people judging each other and uh, stereotypes. You know, it's not a, a subtle theme exactly, but I think by sort of digging into that as it also tells this true story of what Aaron Brockovich actually achieved, I think mm-hmm. it sort of... Um, adds enough to it that it doesn't feel like you're kind of cliche biopic plotting. Um, this is just as much about, um, how Aaron Brock is, um, constantly demanding respect and refused refusing to be judged. And, um, and what that feels like to, to, to have the will to resist that kind of judgment, I think is just as persuasive as that. Like what she actually achieves in terms of, uh, you know, holding PG PGE accountable.
1: Yeah, all while being a mother. Right. Yeah, and yeah. and being a, a well over full time employee based on logged man hours. There's just there's so much endearingness to the the passive character as it's written. And then Julia brings such a a life to it that that's rough but is um completely convincing it's wholly um, en- engrossing I guess it's hard to pick the correct words because although she's beautiful she's very um, powerful and there there's just a, there's a sense to this character that I can't think of another film. Um, male or female, and kind of say that there's another film like this. Dark Waters Mm. is a film thematically very similar, content very similar, but the lead here is Julia Roberts who's kind of just a whirlwind of action and um, the world bends to her in a way that is just very pleasing to be the the person watching.
0: Yeah, and It's just such a likable character. Like, I don't usually think of likability of a protagonist as in and of itself enough to make a movie interesting or compelling. But when you have a character who's bringing that much persuasive life to it, all those qualities, the assertiveness, um, the... Ref, refusal to be condescended to um mm-hmm. like all these qualities are ones that like nobody wouldn't want, and I think that's really part of why this is so broadly appealing um and i I think it resists or avoids being pandering just because of how believable the performance is um that's how you pull off like abilities you just have to sell it she totally does
1: yes mm-hmm. um yeah i I guess regarding julia Roberts um i I made this point briefly. And I'll maybe try to expound on it here or as the conversation goes on. I don't know yet. But Jennifer Lawrence, I believe, is the natural extension of the style that we see from Julia Roberts in this time period. We saw her do Pretty Woman. We saw her do Notting Hill. She's basically um, loud, rough, but polished. And that's kind of what Jennifer Lawrence is. She she has it, and Julia Roberts undeniably has it. And it is rough, it is loud, it is rambunctious, but it's also impossible to take your eyes off of. And I think that Jennifer Lawrence's earlier career work, at least, she's not working now. It's been a couple years since she's had a project. I, I think really maps onto Julia's arc here. They're making very different... Um, films at this period of their careers, and I don't know that they could even play similar characters. But I do think that um, that thing that took America's heart from those David O. Russell films um, that Jennifer was in in her early part of her career really maps on to, to what I've seen from Pretty Woman, from Notting Hill, from My Best Friend's Wedding, from Aaron Brockovich. There's this this thing where you can't look away and you're smiling at how rough they are. And if they don't deliver their line perfectly, that makes the movie better, not worse. And I, I think that that's just a fascinating aspect, not only to this film, but to her arc as a performer.
0: Yeah. Um, I would agree that they have a, a similar uh, kind of magnetism, a similar power, and certainly a similar similar place in the culture. Like when people talk about they're not really being movie stars today in the same way there used to be like, she is one of those actors who's an exception to that, like who can still have a star vehicle built around her. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually might disagree about what the source of that magnetism is though. Oh, really? um, a little bit. Um, in Julia Roberts, I see the appeal as being a little bit more about emotional release and how satisfying it is for her to express what it is her character is feeling. Whereas in Jennifer Lawrence, it's more about the what's appealing is how she's, she tends to kind of withdraw emotionally, um, or sort of recede. Um, I, I think it's a a different kind of, um, performance. Um, I think
1: I have to personally differ from you there. Mm. There's, there's some significant David O. Russell films in which she explodes.
0: I agree. And I think, I think it does, um, maybe warrant sort of like a more performance by performance comparison. Um, there's a really interesting article in Film Common a while back by the uh, critic Shani Enelow, where she talks about this kind of new form of 21st century acting that she kind of traces to Jennifer Lawrence and also groups along with um, Rooney Mara and Kristen Stewart um, as actors who are in contrast to previous generations of actors whose appeal is all kind of about that, that release of sort of whatever emotion they've been hinting at. And these are ones who are um, more about what it is they're not showing us. That's so kind of intriguing and captivating about it. And the hypothesis is that it sort of has to do with how, with sort of the proliferation of images as digital media, you know, takes over our lives Mm -hmm. that people are, are maybe less inclined to emote because that's all they're ever kind of doing in so many modes um and the the the, the case study there is more something like winter's bone where it's okay. much more recessive
1: whereas i'm thinking american hustle right bombastic boston wife there
0: for sure for sure um so yeah i i think uh i think it I think it, um I think performance matters for sure.
1: Yeah, yeah, I I think that I I'd sooner maybe go to Scarlett Johansson than I would Jennifer Lawrence based on those allegories. But I don't mm-hmm. that's just rough off the top of my head. I that's something I need to think about a lot more. But um we at least agree somewhat on the Jennifer yeah. Lawrence Julia Roberts the the double Js. The the
0: the big takeaway of what you said is that you just can't take your eyes off them. I 110% agree on that. That's impossible to deny.
1: You just want to watch them chew scenery or tell a lady that they have two fucking ugly shoes.
0: Right, right. Which are lines that could land as just eye-rollingly, you-go-girl kind of lines. And to me, they totally work. Like I just Mm -hmm. think it's it's just such fun delivery to listen to.
1: As long as I have one ass instead of two, Ted. Or Ed, i'll wear whatever the fuck i like
0: <laughs> yeah and you know i i like that while she is by and large such a likable character she is also kind of imperfect in the sense that she does have this short temper and can be harsh with people mm-hmm. but those imperfections are for very understandable reasons right she doesn't have the the time to um w- w- worry about these things she 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 needs to to pay her bills. She needs to ha- keep her job. She needs to not be judged and be judged based on what she's actually producing. Um, so while you can understandably um, sympathize with the people who are the, the object of her uh, insults, um, it's all for very real kind of sympathetic reasons that she um, is as sort of um, uninhibited as she is.
1: Yeah, I think that's something that Soderbergh also just has in his films most of his characters are not people that you're always going to be completely on the side of and when they are it's it's very fun exceptions like Adam Driver and Channing Tatum and Logan Lucky where -hmm. you just are rooting for these guys to learn how to become successful thieves Right, Which is very different than Ocean's Eleven, where you're rooting for these possibly morally reprehensible characters who are career criminals to perform a successful theft while feeling a little bit compromised in between. Um, And I think here that you can criticize Aaron and it invites criticism, but it also invites you to go along for the ride and be on her side throughout. And same for Albert Finney. Um you know there's the the scene where the the car is honking as it drives past him and they're clearly going very slow that was another extended scene that was cut out in which she started cursing him up and down because he was a terrible driver and he had to get out and switch seats with her so there's there's a lot of back end editing um to this film to make it end up i think feeling this charming and but balanced with the point of her being um a little bit abusive to the people that are closest to her. And I, I do wish there was a little bit more, um, revelatory, um, quality to the film in that. I wish that, um, there, there was a scene with George and Albert or with, uh, Aaron Eckhart and Albert Finney, Mm. um, you know, both maybe sharing what it's like to be the, the punching Mm. bag of, Mm. Aaron's words um, that that's maybe one of the weaker points of the film for me as as well as I think Aaron Eckhart does what he needs to do but I don't know that it works Um, the more I watch it the more that that seems like it might be the weakest spot in the film although it is very fun in its moments I think as a whole piece in the film it might be weaker than the rest of it.
0: Yeah, I would agree. I mean, his character just strikes me as kind of uncomplicated. I guess um, it's such a—he's—he's he's a very patient guy. He's so tolerant, um, and I—I th- I think the interesting thing there is just the—the—the uh, the, the role reversal, right? And him, his character kind of fulfilling this wife-like role, whereas she's playing what we usually see as the husband role. <laughs> but in terms of him, his characterization as just being. Uh, so tolerant I think is just a little kind of one dimensional I guess I don't know there's, there's just not that much complexity in that character I guess that really excites me
1: yeah I I mean I get the lack of complexity and that's not I mean maybe that is what I'm seeing as weak but there's, there's something I can't really put my finger on is th- there's just not enough for me to feel like there's a real tangible emotional arc i guess mm. like the the scene with the earrings has no weight the more i watch the film because it, it there's just such a long time span between their two like between that and the previous legitimate emotional interaction they have mm. so you kind of forget that there's even romance happening between these characters mm which I, I think might pay dividends on a single watch, but the more I, I do watch it, the more that's kind of my takeaway.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. At, rewatching this twice, that was certainly a thing that I ended up kind of wrestling with the most, even though I don't know where I ultimately came out on it, is just the extent to which it kind of asks us to sympathize with him um, for her kind of lack of gratitude towards mm-hmm. him for, for doing what he does and, um, which I think is is understandable, but at the same time it's almost kind of an interesting just subversion of roles where it's like, Welcome to the world of, of movie wives, man, right? Where we, we the movies never ask husbands to express any gratitude towards their wives. Um so I, I you know, I I think there are you you can kind of look at it both ways where you can sympathize with him, but also say, you know, this is how most women feel, man. Um Yeah, I don't know. Interesting stuff there that just, again, takes it a little bit beyond just the biopic plotting um, by by looking at that kind of thing, I guess.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I I think that when I'm watching it, I'm not using the historical cinema viewing of it. I'm more interested in, in the significance of The Grievance, kind of like nowadays when we do see that voiced from women characters as well in film. Um, it's just like, what are the particulars of this, you know? And then there's mm-hmm. films like um, your favorite film, Hail Caesar, in which Allison Pill um, is just completely and totally content to, to be at home in the kitchen. And that's even more problematic because of the way it's presented. <laughs> yeah. um, so that's, that's a good point. I, I mm. take it in stride. I just don't know. There, there's something missing with Aaron's character, with the emotional arc, with... Mm. providing Aaron a real romantic through line there because it, it's very tangible. It's very felt when he falls face down in the grass after telling her how impressed he is that he, that she can remember her bank account balance mm. um, in front of his friends with the motorcycles. And that never has carry. It has an ending, but it doesn't have carry. There's not, a, there's not a couple scenes in the middle that feel real like that. Um, Hmm. like there's the card scene and then that's kind of it. And I, I do think that that's the, the significant weakness, although I think that they're both very good. That's just, that's where my, my criticism for the screenplay I think comes in. Um, what was your biggest weakness that you saw in the film? I don't know
0: that I can point to anything that I really underlined as a problem, but I do think for me especially re- watching this movie twice. I don't know that it's a movie that really rewards a second viewing, even though it's
1: You're right. Still... <laughs> it reviews the 11th or it, it, it is better on the 11th. I you gotta go deeper viewing. than that. Oh yeah.
0: I mean, I personally, I do think it is kind of what you see is what you get in filmmaking, but it's no less satisfying on a second go around. Um, I do tend to value things that excite me aesthetically a little more than this does. Um, And I think they're, is just kind of a straightforwardness to the storytelling, yeah. right? It's extremely comprehensible, which is also a good thing. Um, You know, I I can't help but you know always value the films that make me that give me a little more to wrestle with, or or strike me as having beauty that this film do, just doesn't quite have to elevate it into greatness. It's just you're saying the Manila
1: envelope with a five thousand dollar check and the keys to a blazer isn't morally. Um, complex for you? <laughs> could be, could
0: be. Um, yeah, I. So I don't know that I really can point to that much. I think it's problematic. It's more just kind of about what you value. Um, I don't really care for one character, which is the female lawyer from the bigger law firm. Yeah. I don't know that we can get her ugly name. Shoes. Yeah, I think for a movie that's otherwise really sympathetic to people being judged both you know like that's the whole kind of story to erin is that people don't take her seriously she has to prove herself and then she does the same thing to ed she thinks he's a square who mm-hmm. who's never getting laid um i don't, I don't think remember that maybe the maybe retort f- i'm married <laughs> great hilarious retort um I, that one character just feels like a like a straw character for erin to just blow over which is still fun to watch but She's just the frigid corporate stiff who has no chance in this movie at all. Um, that felt a little, a little too easy for Aaron. In a that little case. contrived.
1: I believe, based on my understanding, there are actually a significant amount of scenes that never made any of the cuts um, involving her doing um, the logistics work with each of mm-hmm. the characters. I think she even had an arc with Cherry Jones and stuff that's just mm-hmm. completely removed from the film.
0: Yeah. You could imagine a little more because it's she feels mostly just in opposition yeah. to Aaron rather than a character in and of itself. She's not really a big, I kind of have that problem
1: things. with a lot of the office girls, too. But that's totally. because there's a bunch of office stuff missing. Like, there's just this is a film where there's a lot of other stuff I want to see but I don't necessarily want it to be in the version of the film that exists for folks to watch, but I do want that version of the film for myself where I can watch the full story as shot by Soderbergh.
0: Yeah. Um, the little bit we get, I kind of like because Aaron, you know, goes back so hard at some of the girls that you feel kind of bad for them. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, There's the line Erin says about why she's not going out to lunch with all the other girls. And she said she's just not that kind of girl. I think that's just a nice example of how kind of lonely um, this can feel to have to, um, yeah, just have to put up with that kind of thing is very understandable.
1: See, that's that's the thing about Soderbergh that I love, that there's scenes that have been cut out. That you know have been cut out and you end up having a takeaway just as quick that's even more profound than what the scene would have offered. There was an extended scene in which she walked past the girls when they were making plans for lunch and they chose not to invite her after saying hi to her and that would have just hit you over the head with it. The way that Soderbergh does it, It you feel like you're finding, you feel like you're with them as the voyeur noticing their emotions and that's, that's the main thing that I, I love about him is he, he tends to attempt to direct in a way where the content is the form. And then he tries to edit in a way where the content is the form, right? The, mm. the opening of the film is her not getting a job, but the first thing we hear is the interview on a black screen. So mm. you're already curious what's happening, which brings you into with the propulsiveness that makes it feel lean where he can cut all that stuff out that informs everything and you don't go, why is she coughing? You go, she's sick, Mm. right? It's, I I think that it's a special director to get you to that point rather than going, what's going on? Why is that going on? Instead, he's a director that's kind of pulling you along to the point where you're just making assumptions and going with it, which I I find very, very valuable. And that's why he's one of my favorite directors. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know that I got
0: quite as much of a sense of voyeurism um, only because it feels so kind of involving in in, in its direction. Um, You know, I think some of the other films, other films that I might describe as voyeuristic seem to take some kind of distance from the action or something like that. that If you compare this
1: to a ghost story, you're going to win. But I well mean, even
0: just relative to other Soderberg stuff right
1: Yeah um, yeah I think this is kind of early on in, in him discovering that voyeurism but right it starts with like a head to toe of her crushing a cigarette after that failed interview that feels like you're observing her there's uh, the scene where she's running in high heels across the lawn it feels like mm-hmm. you're watching that when she runs out of the house and you're watching Aaron Eckhart close up while he's revving the engine and she's trying to yell at him you feel like you're watching something real. And I guess that's what I mean when I say voyeurism. It feels like you're watching something real and if not real significant and if not significant raw.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, maybe it's like, you know, just to use like dark waters as another example. Like, I don't know that I would describe that one as voyeuristic. I think I'm, I do get the sense of just watching these characters. Um, but so different from something like unsane, right? Where the camera suggests a point of view. Yes. I think maybe that's the the key for me when I really pick up on voyeurism is that it's suggestive of a point of view that is not the character we're, we're seeing. Um, um, so yeah, maybe it's the familiarity of, of you knowing where he's going with this. Yes. That you see yeah. really beneath the surface here. Oh, it's or hard, really it's hard surface, for me but.
1: to remove all the, the Soderbergh watching I've that done. I, I think yeah. that I've watched Logan Lucky three times already this year. Um, that so, makes sense. Yeah, which anecdotally, Logan Lucky, he read the screenplay for mm. to f- help the company find a the right director for that project.
0: Mm. And
1: when he read it, that was the screenplay that made him realize that he had to be a movie director again because he couldn't let anybody else direct that movie. It had to be him. I like which that. anecdotally is very fun to me because it's one of my favorite movies. Just it just is. It's it's like it's just a fun comedy. Um, but back to Aaron Brockovich. Um, I guess just an aside, completely aside, the supporting actors here are really, really impressive. There's a lot of folks that are playing nominal roles that either had quite impressive careers before this or have gone on to continue to have impressive careers or had their careers kind of start here. Um, Notably, Cherry Jones, who's a a stage actress um, who has collaborated with Woody Allen pretty frequently. I believe she played... Timothy Chalamet's mother in um A Rainy Day in New York most recently in Woody Allen's mm-hmm. films um TJ Tyne who plays the first um lawyer from PGE or lawyer assistant who's only mm-hmm. authorized to give $250,000 um it struck me that I knew him like I, and I had no idea how his name is TJ Tyne and he was in, I believe, 265 episodes of the television show Bones. Wow! <laughs> so there's that is
0: an awesome footnote.
1: There's just uh, some crazy character actors who are very accomplished. Uh, Tracy Walter, who plays kind of the the skeezy guy who's always wearing a hat, um, oh, he's good. who he eventually is quite crucial to the film's. Uh, or rather the case's success. He had been a repo man and Batman Mm. and Conan, like just this crazy career before that. And he's just playing a a significant character role. Then we have Michael Harney, who's playing the husband of the, um, the wife and the father of their children. Uh, The wife has a hysterectomy and has a double mastectomy and it's Mm. very sad. And we see him throwing rocks into the night um, in a, in a series of jump cuts and, he went on to be in Orange is the New Black Widows, which I believe you like yeah. also oh, yeah. a true detective. Um, so that um, the meat here in the middle at the bottom, these, these character actors are really, really talented. And I think that that might be something as Soderbergh's career continues, he just has more and more talent surrounding him, which tells me that, you know, he, he's someone that people want to work with. Um, mm for maybe personal reasons as well as professional ones uh, when you look at his collaborations with Tatum and then most notably is the um, the incoming lawyer who's the head of the firm that gives mm. them the money back that fellow is Peter Coyote mm. and he narrates almost all of Ken Burns's documentaries
0: oh interesting
1: yes he's
0: got a good voice
1: yes he does
0: <laughs> say again the name of the gentleman who has the hat we suspect Tracy Walter, Tracy Walter. I did particularly like how that character is handled and sort of the misdirection. The movie gives us because he's certainly made out to be quite suspicious Mm at first, right? Like, uh, this is after Aaron's received a threatening phone call that we see this guy periodically popping up and we're not quite sure who he is. Um, and to me, it only feeds back into this theme about jumping to conclusions about people. Um, and it's for very real reasons that that Aaron might um, be a little nervous about this guy, mm-hmm. especially as him coming off a little sketchy. Uh, but he, he ultimately proves to be of great use um, yes. and, a, and a kind person. Um, and I think, to, you know, for much of this movie, we're watching Aaron and Ed sort of um move past their judgments of each other that's the movie playing us a little bit mm-hmm. because i certainly think that guy is up to no good yeah and then and and we have to come around to him a little bit
1: yeah it's it's um it's an entire aside just for the viewer to feel what aaron would be feeling or so that you could feel what it would be like to be a, a beautiful woman dressed like aaron's dressed being ogled by this guy who doesn't seem to be someone who you would feel any sense of safety Mm -hmm. from the amount of ogling that he's doing um in the courtroom specifically she just Mm -hmm. randomly turns around and makes eye contact with him and it seems like he's been staring at her for the duration possibly Mm -hmm. of the court and that's got to be challenging um to to figure out how to do and what a what a great performer collaboration to to carry that and convey it to the audience.
0: Yeah, and that he doesn't just turn around and become this just perfectly normal guy. Like he remains eccentric throughout mm-hmm. all of his scenes. Um, so it you know it's not a one eighty. It's just that um th- this the suspicion is kind of dismantled a little bit, and you see he's just. More of an odd duck yeah. um, who, who is interested in the same things she is, ultimately.
1: And uh, happens to have some paperwork because it turns out he's not mm-hmm. too good at his job.
0: Very satisfying.
1: Yeah. Um, I, I guess to go back and pound on the, the dead horse that is voyeurism, mm. um, one thing that I really like is the way that we see it become personal for Aaron. Um, she goes -hmm. and she knocks on Cherry Jones's door, um, which is the no solicitor's door, Mm -hmm. um, behind the screen. And she has that conversation, um, with Cherry who says, I, I, you know, she just doesn't want to go through it essentially again. And it's hard enough on their family. Uh, no. And then she goes to the, uh, the family that has the daughter, um, who has cancer and is receiving chemotherapy and she's calling her a lady killer and all that. Mm-hmm. Or a boy killer, rather. And we get this really slow, deliberate zoom-in as she's beginning to process what this means for the community. And it and mm-hmm. it becomes personal for her. And I think that the way that, that that's shot from the other side of the screen door, so that you feel like you're watching that event happen, and then you're watching Aaron have an emotional reaction, that's the beginnings of that voyeurism that I think Soderbergh's going to develop here throughout his career. Mm. And we'll talk about it more in a couple months with side effects, but mm. um, I, I think that that's kind of one of the key things to understanding him as a director is he he likes to present things as if you are a human watching humans, I think.
0: Mm. Yeah. yeah, I do think it's interesting... Uh how this movie shows that it, you know, it does become very personal for her and she does get very involved in the cause and and wants to do it just because it's the right thing to do. And it's important to to stand up for uh, people when, when they're getting taken advantage of Um, a line that, that stood out to me just to kind of add to her, her motivation to all this is when um, Aaron Eckert's character, George, I was almost forgetting his name is getting ready to leave. And, you know, he, asks a question. I don't remember what exactly the question is, but it's like, you know, what are you getting out of this? And it's you know, you're expecting her to say it's because I care about this, and she says it's um it's because for the first time in my life people respect me.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um which is just an I don't know, that that she chose to say that first doesn't like tarnish her character in any way to me. It's just um you know, it just it's coupled with this fact that she not only wants to do the right thing, but she that she Values getting taken seriously that she that people she finally value, value her professionalism yeah yeah um i think that is uh affecting as well and the movie does a good job of doing both of those in parallel showing that she she cares and is also satisfied by um having people recognize her value i guess
1: yeah i i don't even know that i'd say v- satisfied but is quenched her satisfaction is quenched you know Better word, yeah. she never uh gives me the idea that she's anywhere close to satisfied with how the ending is Very with her knocking on another door um and starting that that next round of pg e lawsuits from a bigger community that i don't believe has been settled yet um word what do you think about the 90s soundtrack I
0: don't know that I have a super strong response to a lot of the music. I think the score is good. I think it's sort of a um, it, it guides us through the story. Um, I don't know that there's anything I love about the score itself, um, but it works. What about you?
1: I this is tough for me because I really like it, but I it's hard for me to know how to express it. Um, and it's like it's a score that's propulsive but it's a score that has no thrust. So it's not trying to push you along, but as you naturally progress, it is uh, a a rope that you don't notice pulling you there. Mm -hmm. I I think specifically the deeper base um, lines that it has are, are really crucial to feeling the forward momentum in lines of dialogue. Right mm-hmm. there's there's lines of dialogue where she's finding out what normal chromium is, what three chromium is, what hexavalent chromium is, and in the background we have a little bit of a of a bass beat, uh, string bass, electric, going just under the surface, and I think that that clues me in as a, as a listener and a viewer to know that there's something happening here, and it's it's. Bringing me with it, but it's a gentle pull. Um, mm. But it, it's certainly a pull, um, and I I really responded to that. And then the Sheryl Crow choices. Um, Soderbergh has said that he couldn't imagine choosing any other songs to express who Aaron was, um, at least from a from a songwriting standpoint.
0: Yeah, I would not disagree with any of that. I think it's maybe just not the the score that I'm gonna really go on to remember because it does feel sort of intended to appeal to a wide swath of taste i don't think many people are going to say god i couldn't stand that score Mm -hmm. um i don't know that i got a ton of personality except from the cheryl crow needle drop which is right a kind of distinctly uh I I don't know it it it, it that works it just worked.
1: My understanding is there was going to be a lot more, but it was hard to get the rights. Mm.
0: That's the problem. Not enough Cheryl. Crow. Yeah,
1: <laughs> um, I I do like Thomas Newman though, and he's gone on to uh, to do quite a few projects with uh, Soderbergh. Um, most recently, though, he's began using the pseudonym monikers that um, that Soderbergh's known for using: Marianne Williamson or Wilson as the editor. And then Peter Andrews is the uh, cinematographer. Um, Thomas Newman's new name on his Soderbergh projects is David Wilder Savage, with Mm. which he did High Flying Bird and Unsane.
0: He's like, that sounds fun. I want to do that.
1: Yeah, it's currently the topic of a lot of discussion, I guess, in the film community where people think that he didn't like the work that he did on those two films. So he changed the Mm. name. But I, I personally think that they've had too long of a career as, as friends and collaborators. I think that he thinks it's fun to, to do work that isn't something you'd think of when you think of the Newman family, under mm. a different moniker or a pseudonym.
0: Mm. Yeah, uh, yeah, isn't it? Uh, Alan Smithy, the name directors will give to a film that they want to like disown. I think They'll so. Have, they're just making their own names
1: up. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. Um. I guess what what is the purpose of of this film for you? Is it the social justice? Is it the heroine? Is it um, is it just to feel good? Do you feel like this has a clean genre as a biopic? Because it certainly is a biopic, but which subgenre of that do you feel like it it falls into?
0: Yeah, it's weird. Biopic actually isn't the first word that comes to mind in. I think that's a good thing because I think it is smoothly directed enough that it just doesn't have that feel of, and then this happened, and then this happened. You know, that just kind of list orientation that so many biopics can have, especially when they're doing a birth to death arc, which this mm-hmm. obviously doesn't do. I think this 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 has the feel of a very natural storytelling, so it's a compliment. I think the biopic isn't even like the first thing that jumps to my mind. Um, I do think it's just strength of character that appeals to me most. Um, and how lively that performance is by Julia Roberts. And I, I would describe it as a feel good film. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean that in a uh, you know, insulting way at all. It it feels great. Or even in a I would call stereotypical it a way, film. right? Yeah. It's,
1: yeah it's a unique film that makes you feel good about something that shouldn't really feel good. Right? Dark Waters isn't a feel-good movie. That is a feel-bad
0: movie. 100%.
1: This is a a feel-good movie, mainly because it it ends with the significant checks.
0: Yes, absolutely. Um, What about you?
1: Yeah, to me, this is a drama, and then it's a biopic, and then I don't really know what to do. Feel-goods, right? This is a film that I grew up with, so um, it's hard for me to get a clean read on it as far as what it would fall into as subgenres, I, I do think that it paved the way for, like, um, biopics about heroines, biopics about social justice, like Dark Waters, um, and, and that t- taking down larger structures that are oppressing people. But it is just a, a drama about one woman trying to do the right thing to me, more than anything else. And I think that that's why I just keep coming back to it, because there's there's really not that many movies like this. Um, y- you know, it, as maybe funny as it sounds, I, I would say maybe Legally Blonde is one of the closest mm. that I can think of that's similar where it's just, you feel good for this character as she navigates the workspace while being beautiful and um, maturing. You know, it's different because she doesn't have a family and stuff, but that's kind of the only film like this that I can think of.
0: Yeah. Um, I might also describe it as a whistleblower movie in a way, mm-hmm. um, or, uh, you know, the part one, yeah. Or, <laughs> you know, the quote unquote, they knew drama, um, which is kind of an interesting genre to me because to me, it's the kind that is usually, this isn't exclusive to this kind of movie, but it's a genre that I think is, um is particularly successful when it has a star. I don't think our people are particularly interested in social justice whistleblower movies like this. If you have a no name in the lead role, which is kind of ironic since it's about someone who is sort of, um, feeling judged by the powers that be. And the appeal to the movie is that it is a star who reigns above all um, I think there is something kind of funny about how whistleblower movies are most successful when they have someone who everybody knows, who everybody likes, um, and how hard it maybe is maybe to make a movie that really sells if, if, it's, if it were a no-name actor. I
1: don't think there's ever been a whistleblower movie that was as successful as this, though, <laughs> since we, this yeah, film. We,
0: we at least didn't see it. Right?
1: Like, Snowden was not mm. successful. I saw it. I enjoyed it. I think it's a fantastic film. It did not go over well. Uh, Dark Waters, you know, it's hard to make a case for why that was even released in theaters other than for our cinematic pleasure. Mm -hmm. Um, Gosh, what's the other one? There's one that I'm forgetting um, for whatever reason, but it's just not something that seems to sell. And I think that that's part of the heart and the earnestness of this is it's not just that. That's the thing. Mm -hmm. It's not just any of these things. You can't break it down. And I think. That is Soderbergh's films to a great extent for me. To me, the Oceans trilogy is definitely in the crime genre, but there's a lot more going on, especially in Oceans 12, when all of a sudden Julia Roberts is Julia Roberts. Mm-hmm. Um, and the experimentation that he starts doing when he's the cinematographer for those films, and how he throws, you know, homages to Rafifi on their head and makes them his mm-hmm. own and uses the the rich wallpaper of an elevator to change the, the tapestral feeling of, of the picture. There's just there's so much to him as a as a director that I find this to be kind of a, a keystone to his career. Um in, in a lot of ways that I, I wish um I could I could just watch the movie and narrate to you what I am seeing almost because I see so much in it. Um, that informed his future
0: yeah um yeah it's it's funny to think about oceans 11 as held up as like peak star power driven filmmaking even mm-hmm. though in addition it it is very well made and very crisp and and very fun only to them have him subsequently draw so much attention to star power with that kind of move that is also the kind of move um that along with the the changing of the names, behind the scenes of filmmaking and the, and the camera work that I think sometimes turns me off a little bit only because it can feel a little bit like a stunt or something like that. You know, like just a lot of filmmakers just don't do this kind of thing that, you know, with Nolan Tarantino, a lot of people, a lot of the directors he's spoken of in the same regard with, um, or in the same category as, um, who kind of just let the work speak for themselves. I think mm-hmm. he, sometimes that turns me off a little bit that he draws so much attention to the experimentation from film to film and whatever the the, the a, a gimmick might be. Um
1: to me that's his that's his, his authorial thing. eccentricity. That is his version of having a brother who's crazy and helps me write every screenplay like Christopher Nolan or for Tarantino writing novels based on his screenplays not to mention all the other eccentricities that tarantino has i think i, I personally just find soderberg's eccentricities per, just absolutely charming like there's there's nothing i love more than him going out of his way to try to break the form into something new even if it doesn't work haywire very intensely does not work as a film i think but it's also one of my favorite pieces of experimental i guess you couldn't call it experimental cinema but an experimental attempt at a at a significant level from a director to have what is almost an all-star cast led by a ufc star attempting to do that and then he does mosaic which you know broke form and content um in a brand new way that was designed for mobile viewing in segments so that you felt like a detective piecing footage together um, yeah, he's, he's a, he's a director where form and content have never been more, more close together, I think. Um, and you don't have to do that, but the way that he does do that, and with such sincerity, I love it.
0: It certainly makes it less predictable to me. I know it. I'm getting more or less going into a movie by any of those other guys. Stoderbergh. I, don't, I never really know. In fact, that's exactly what happened this week when I watched Out of Sight, thinking it was one movie and it was something completely different. So.
1: Yeah, you thought you watched <laughs> The Limey. You did not.
0: I did not. I did not. Uh, where does this stack up in terms of your uh, appreciation for his films? Towards the top, middle, bottom?
1: You know, it's it's in the top heap, but the top is a very... Think of Ayer's Rock, right? Yeah. Hmm. There's a lot of top to it, Mm. and there's a very little slope, and then there's the bottom. That's kind of Soderbergh to me. There's a lot on the top. There's a lot of my favorite movies from him. Unsane, Logan Lucky, Ocean's Eleven, This, Traffic, Side Effects. Um, And then on the slope, like the top of the slope's The Informant. On the bottom's probably The Haywire and Out of Sight. So Aaron Brockovich is near the center of Ayers Rock. I like it. How about you?
0: It is up there for me. Sex, Lies, and Videotape far and away remains my favorite Soderbergh film, but it's right up there alongside side effects in Contagion. A couple of those I haven't seen in a while, so the order of those is sort of whatever, but it's certainly uh, fighting for a place at the top.
1: Good. I'm glad that, uh, that we haven't watched any any downward spirals yet. Um, Me too. So we've already discussed that we're going to be covering a history of violence from David Cronenberg next month. The month after that, we'll be revisiting one of the greatest living film directors who's a leader in the experiment of form and content, Steven Soderbergh. And we'll be covering side effects. Um, So until next time.
0: Cheers. And that's another one in the can. Now you don't.
1: That's tight.
0: That's very tight.